0: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's deep dive podcast into genre television. I'm Josh Wigler, your host here on Series Regular, and for the next several weeks, we're all in on one thing and one thing only: Game of Thrones. Consider this your weekly window into the world of Westeros as we thoroughly explore each episode of the Emmy-winning epic's final season. This week, we're talking about A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, the second episode of season eight, and the 69th episode of Game of Thrones overall. The episode hails from the director of the season premiere, David Nutter, with a script from longtime Thrones writer and co-executive producer Brian Cogman, one of the creative forces behind the scenes, most often credited with keeping track of character and continuity details. It's no wonder, then, that for his one and only final season script, Cogman delivered one of the richest character feasts in Game of Thrones history. Let's dig into it. Game of Thrones is not a happy show. Bad things happen to good people, and with alarming regularity. But sometimes, the characters themselves and the dedicated audience alike are allowed nice things, as was the case in A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Let's dig into some of the happier moments before we start diving into the dread, and let's begin specifically with what might be the happiest scene in the entire Game of Thrones catalog, the scene from which the episode takes its title.
1: I'm no king, but if I were... I'd knight you ten times over. You don't need a king. Any knight can make another knight. I'll prove it. Kneel,
0: Lady Brienne. You know what happens next. Gwendolyn Christie, who plays Lady Brienne, slowly stands up, walks toward Jamie Lannister, and kneels before him. The two of them joined by a room of unlikely strangers. Tyrion, Davos, Podrick, Torment. On the eve of great battle, these disparate personalities who barely know each other but are deeply known to us are suddenly bonded in an instance none of us knew we were waiting for, but one that makes us openly ugly cry all the
1: same. In the name of the warrior, I charge you to be brave. In the name of the father... I charge you to be just. In the name of the Mother, I charge you to defend the innocent. Arise, Brienne of Tarth, a Knight of
0: the Seven Kingdoms. Lady Brienne does as told, arising as Sir Brienne of Tarth, ushering tears of joy in millions of households across the globe, as well as uproarious applause in a warm hall of Winterfell.
1: Sir Brienne of Tarth, Knight of the Seven Kingdoms,
0: In HBO's weekly Inside the Episode feature, creators Benioff and Weiss described the scene as one they loved so much that they named the episode after it, per Benioff. Brienne has been more knightly than any of the knights we have ever seen. Barristan Selmy may have something to say about that, but honestly, I'm not going to quibble with it. Brienne is incredible and more devout in her service than just about any character on the show. This is a woman whose word and honor alone are enough to convince Sansa Stark earlier in the episode to spare the life of Jaime Lannister, a man who fought her own father with the intent to kill.
1: I trust you with my life. If you trust him with yours we should let him stay.
0: Beyond being a big knight for Brienne and Jaime, a Knight of the Seven Kingdoms sees a really touching moment for another Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, Jorah Mormont, long ago exiled from Westeros, now finally back in the north, even if the circumstances could be better. Jorah was never afforded the opportunity to say goodbye to his father, the late Lord Commander Jeor Mormont, killed in season three by Night's Watch mutineers. But Jora has recently developed a kinship with someone who also viewed Lord Commander Mormont like a father, Samuel Tarley, who delivers Jora a gift that is both highly practical and deeply emotional.
1: What so have you got there? It's called Heart'sbane. It's my family sword. You still have a family? Yes, and I'd love to defend them with it. But I can't really hold it upright. Your father, he taught me how to be a man, how to do what's right. This is right. It's Valyrian Steel. I'd
0: be honored if you take it. The honor may be Sam's, but the pleasure is all ours. Jorah Mormont with Heartsbane in hand is absolutely excellent news heading into the coming battle against the white walkers who are notoriously allergic to valyrian steel expect the bear islander to do some tremendous damage to the army of the dead in next week's episode speaking of doing damage to the dead there's another warrior with her hands on valyrian steel who can't wait to put it to good use
1: i know death (gasps) he's got many faces I look forward to seeing this one. My weapon. I'll get right on it.
0: Arya Stark and Gendry not quite Baratheon's friendship goes way back to their first meeting at the end of season one, back when Arya was still a kid and Gendry was a teenager. The two of them hit the open road on their way to Castle Black before it all went up in smoke and they wound up at Harrenhal. After Melisandre took Gendry away in season three, he and Arya didn't see each other again for many years. They both changed tremendously in that time. Gendry got a haircut and got better at hammering things. Arya grew her hair out and got better at killing things. Years after they last saw each other, they finally reunited at the Forge of Winterfell in the final season premiere, a far cry from the relatively innocent children they once were. And if viewers needed a reminder about just how far Game of Thrones is a series and Arya as a character have come since the very beginning, look no further than this line of dialogue.
1: We're probably going to die soon. I ought to know what it's like before that happens.
0: And with those words, the romantic possibilities between Arya and Gendry were no longer just the stuff of fan fiction. And whatever happens next to these crazy kids in the coming battle, at least one of the oldest prophecies in Game of Thrones lore is one step closer to completion a union between the Starks and the Baratheons.
1: I have a son, you have a daughter. We'll join our houses.
0: There are other happy moments littered throughout A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, from Theon Greyjoy and Sansa Stark's heartwarming reunion, to Grey Worm and Masande making plans for what they'll do after the war's over. But for my money, it doesn't get much happier than this. The truth behind the name Tormund Giants
1: Bane. I killed the giant when I was ten. And then I climbed right into bed with his wife. When you woke up, you know what you did suckled me at her teeth for three months thought I was a baby that's how I got so strong giant's milk
0: Okay, enough of that. It's not the Red Viper's head getting crushed, but it's still pretty gross. Sour milk chugging contests aside, this was a really wonderful series of scenes from the incredible cast, as directed brilliantly by David Nutter and written beautifully by Brian Cockman. It's a perfect reminder of why we love Game of Thrones so much the characters. And now, let's turn it back to Torment, who has some pretty bad news for us.
1: We're all going to die. But at least we die
0: together. The Night King cometh, and with him, the army of the dead. In short order, the Game of Thrones cast will feel the full weight of the White Walker War, with Winterfell likely falling in the process. If Jon Snow, Daenerys, and everyone else you know and love is about to die, it won't be because they didn't try hard enough. Midway through A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, Jon and his allies rally together and formulate a plan for how to best take on the undead threat. The scene is one that fans should study closely, according to what Benioff and Weiss revealed in HBO's latest Inside the Episode. Here's a quote from Weiss. The most important thing about that scene is understanding the lay of the land and understanding what their intentions are, what their plans are, what their expectations are, so we know what we're looking at. Things may not go entirely according to plan." so we thought it was important for people to know what everyone in the room expected to happen, was worried would happen, and hoped would happen, End quote. So with all that said, let's get to studying. There are two major components to the plan in place worth breaking down before we get into the next episode. First, let's start with how things are supposed to play out for the men, women, and children of Winterfell who aren't joining the fight. There are a lot of people here in the North right now, and not all of them are battle-ready. Luckily... There's a plan in place for those folks.
1: When the time comes, you'll be down in the crypts. They're the safest place to be.
0: The crypts of Winterfell are where you'll find Gilly and Little Sam next episode. It's also where you'll find Teela, the scarred little girl who wants nothing more than to fight for Winterfell.
1: I'm going to be in the crypt with my son, and I'd feel a lot better with you down there to protect us. I'm sure a lot of people would. Alright, I'll defend the crypt then. Despite
0: seeing the ghost of Shireen Baratheon in Tila, Davos Seaworth has another job to do during the battle for Winterfell. His fellow sharp-minded friend Tyrion Lannister, however.
1: When the time comes, Sir Davos and I will be on the walls to give you the signal to light the trench. Sir Davos is perfectly capable of waving a torch on his own. You'll be in the crypt. Your grace, I have fought before. I can do it again, alongside the men and women risking their lives. There are thousands of them, and only one of you. You can't fight as well as they can, but you can think better than any of them. You're here because of your mind. If we survive, I'll need it.
0: Gilly Little Sam, Teela the Crypt Keeper, Tyrion Lannister, all of them are safe in the crypts. Plus, Barris the Spider, who we've seen in the Winterfell crypts in previous footage of the final season. That's great. Five lovable characters whose safety are no longer a concern heading into what should be one of the deadliest episodes of all time. Just one problem with all of that. And to illustrate the point, I'd like to take you back to the Season 4 finale, in which Bran Stark, Hodor, and the siblings Reed reached the Cave of the Three-Eyed Raven and found something else entirely along the way. Those are the sounds of skeletons bursting up from out of the ground, attacking our heroes and our hearts with sheer terror and bone parts. We've seen decayed, rotting corpses before in the Army of the Dead, with whites as frail as literal skeletons. The White Walkers can enlist actual bones in their fight, in other words, which is a haunting prospect on its own, but absolutely terrifying in the context of where everyone's headed.
1: It's going to be safer down in the crypt, you know. When the time comes, you'll be down in the crypt, where the safest place to be. I'm going to be in the crypt with my son. You'll be safer in the crypt. We'll put you in the crypt where it's safest. No, you'll be in the crypt. i will be safe down in the crypt.
0: The crypts of Winterfell have been name-checked a thousand times in the final season already, or something close to that. And it's been featured in a couple of key scenes already, including when Sam told Jon the truth about his Targaryen roots right in front of Ned Stark's protected bones, as well as Jon relaying that same information to Daenerys in front of his real mother Lyanna's protected bones. Worth repeating and emphasizing, the bones of Ned Stark and Lyanna Stark are both in the crypts of Winterfell. Undead bones have attacked the living before. Undead bones are likely going to attack the living once again. And they're going to attack the living in the crypts of Winterfell, with nobody there to protect them.
1: All right, I'll defend the crypt then.
0: Okay, Tila will defend the crypt. Aside from her, who's gonna help out? Tyrion's there, and as he mentioned to Daenerys, he's fought battles before, expecting to fight a few skeletons off in the episode ahead. Varys will be with him, and sadly, I think Varys will be dead before long. I'm worried about Gilly and little Sam, too, unless Papa Sam shows up and does his Sam the Slayer routine. Considering how he clearly saw shades of Shireen and Tila, maybe Davos is going to head to the crypts as well, though as he likes to remind us.
1: I've never been much of a fighter. Apologies for what you're about to see.
0: (laughs) So that's the crypt plan. Seems like everything's going to be peachy keen on that one. How about the other big plan at the night? The one designed to drop the army of the dead in one fell swoop. Here, let's turn the mic over to
1: the Warden of the North. The Night King made them all. They follow his command. If he falls, getting to him may be our best
0: chance. It's the same theory Beric Dondarian floated in Season 7's Beyond the Wall. And now that it's been said on the show twice, we should expect Thrones to follow through on the Iron Price. Killing the Night King will kill the White Walkers just one problem why would the night king expose himself if he knows that he's a white walking target cue bran with the answer for that one
1: he'll come for me he's tried before many times with many three-eyed ravens why what does he want an endless night he wants to erase this world and i am its memory Bran
0: wears the Night King's mark, so the Night King knows exactly how to find Bran, which leads Bran to a plan. He's going to park it in the Godswood and wait for his ancient enemy, but he won't be waiting for him alone.
1: We're not leaving you alone out there.
0: He won't be. I'll stay with him.
1: With the Ironborn. I took this castle from you. Let me defend you now.
0: Theon, Greyjoy, and the Ironborn are going to be brand security detail, while everyone else like Brienne, Jorah, Jaime, and the Unsullied and the Dothraki forces fight on the front lines, and folks like the Hound and Beric Dondarrion and Arya Stark and who knows who else go out about the battle in their own way. Anyone see anything wrong with that? Does no one else remember what happened the last time Theon squared off against a singular force of elemental evil?
1: I have her. Come and
0: due respect to Theon who underwent significant personal trauma which more than explains why he abandoned ship back in season 7 for me but this is the guy we're sending on the A mission really in the books Theon's an expert marksman and we've seen some of that on the show as recently as the season premiere but really All the best fighters in Westeros are at Winterfell. And Theon's the guy we're picking to protect the Three-Eyed Raven? With the Ironborn as backup? Not to add insult to injury, but here's a worthy summary of the Ironborn's talents as per Jaime Lannister.
1: They're not good at anything. I know the Ironborn. They're
0: bitter, angry little people. All they know how to do is steal things they can't build or grow themselves. So let's get this straight. Thrones is putting Theon in harm's way next week which means his time with us is about to be cut short. There's just no chance Theon takes down the Night King, as much as I would love to see that. It would be such an unlikely way for Thrones to end. Much more likely, Theon's going to muster up all the strength and courage he's shored up in the past few episodes. He's going to stand up to the deadliest creature in all of Westeros. And that's going to be a huge slap in the face to the Theon of old. The same Theon who couldn't bring himself to fight Uncle Euron. The same Theon who betrayed the Starks and foolishly sought to win Winterfell for his own personal pride. It'll be a true moment of what is dead may never die. A moment of ultimate redemption and closure for Theon. But it will also be his last moment. Few characters are likelier for death next week than Theon Greyjoy. On the plus side, at least he's already earned some forgiveness from House Stark.
1: I want to fight for Winterfell, Lady Sansa. If you'll have me.
0: One thing that may save Theon, but probably won't, is this. He and the Ironborn and Bran all have some additional firepower nearby.
1: The dragon should give us an edge in the field. If they're in the field, they're not protecting Bran. We need to be near him. Not too near or the Night King won't come. But close enough to pursue him when he does. Dragonfire will stop him? I don't know. No one's ever tried. There's some compelling
0: theories out there right now that the Night King won't even show up to Winterfell at all that he's instead going to ride the undead Viserion down to King's Landing and start waging war in the south. It's worth chewing on that possibility for sure. But the stage is also set here for the climactic showdown between the Night King and the Three-Eyed Raven, an ancient grudge match between old foes, with Theon and dragons alike caught in the middle. As for how it'll play out, I don't like the odds for Isaac Hempstead right as Bran. But I do like the odds for Bran to survive, if only in spirit. Remember, he's a warg, Which means he can zap his consciousness into other living creatures, like weirwood trees and, you guessed it, dragons. Heed these old words from the Three Eyed Raven You'll never walk again. But you will fly. And heed these old words from Obi Wan Kenobi You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. In addition to Theon, I think we're about to lose Bran Stark's physical form, only for him to warg into one of the nearby dragons. Whether that's Drogon, Rhaegal, or even the undead Viserion, paving the way for Jon to take on the Night King, and for the Three-Eyed Raven to truly take flight. Realistically, it's not just Bran and Theon we should be worried about, and not just the folks in the Winterfell crypts either. It's everyone. We're very likely at the edge of a huge bloodbath, a massive calling, with large swaths of characters getting plucked from the field, including the folks by the fireplace. Tyrion, Jaime, Davos, Torment, Podrick, Brienne. But what if we're being too fatalistic? Here, let's listen in on some of Tyrion's half-drunk
1: musings. It's strange, isn't it? Almost everyone here has fought the Starks. At one time or another. And here we are in their castle, ready to defend it. Together. At least we'll die with honor. I think we might live. (laughs) (laughs) I I do. How many battles have we survived between us? Sir Davos Seaworth, survivor of both the Blackwater and the Battle of the Bastards. All without a shred of combat ability. Mm. Sir Jamie Lannister, fabled hero of the Siege of Pike. Fabled loser of the Battle of Whispering Wood. Hear, hear. Sir Brienne of Tarth defeated the Hound.
0: Pardon me, Lady Brienne. Which brings us back to the knighting, and brings me to a point that I feel like we should consider. What if, and just hear me out, but what if Tyrion is right? What if they live? What if we're underestimating the combined powers of our heroes? Tyrion lists out the resumes for Davos, Jaime, and Brienne, but let's list out a few more in play. The Dothraki, for one. The Horse Lords of Essos, who crossed the Narrow Sea for the first time in their history, inspired to do so by the Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, Daenerys Targaryen. Also inspired by the Mother of Dragons, the Unsullied, led by Grey Worm. A ferocious fighting force unlike anything known in the world of ice and fire, born and raised in blood and battle. With dragon glass-tipped weaponry at their disposal, these fighters are on the front lines against the army of the dead. Who are we to doubt the people who have fought so fearlessly for the breaker of chains? The Unsullied and Dothraki aren't alone in their stand against the Whites either. They have some of the best fighters in Westeros on their side. The Knights of the Vale, commanded by Bronzian Royce. Sure. We mock Robin Aaron without mercy, and deservedly so, but the men he presides over are as heroic as they come. The Knights of the Vale single handedly turned the tide at the Battle of the Bastards, the last major showdown at the gates of Winterfell. They know how to win wars on this battleground. Why should we doubt him now? And from an individual standpoint, some of the single most legendary heroes in modern Westeros history are here to fight, swords in hand, Valyrian swords in hand, in the cases of Brienne, Jaime, and Sir Jorah. As we mentioned, Jorah has Heartsbane. The ancestral sword of House Tarly, given to him by Samwell, one of the smartest men in the Seven Kingdoms. And he passed it over with all the heart and bravery so perfectly cultivated by his own father, the late Lord Commander J.R. Mormont. The power of Jorah's own father courses through Hart'sbane as much as it wears the influence of Samwell's family. A similar energy courses through Oathkeeper and Widow's Wail, the swords wielded by Brienne and Jaime, created from ice, the Valyrian greatsword once owned by the late Ned Stark. If it wasn't enough that serves Brienne, Jaime, and Jorah are some of the best fighters in Westeros, then perhaps the destiny working on their side is enough to tip them over the edge. There are other heroes fighting throughout the Winterfell War as well, though their purposes are less known, like the Hound and Beric Dondarrion, who were last seen together. And while it feels very likely that we'll lose the Lightning Lord, let's not forget that he's cheated death so many times before. What's one more between friends? The Hound, meanwhile, he can't die until he's met his brother on the battlefield, and there are no Lannister loyalists in sight right now. Whatever happens here, the Hound, at the very least, has more life left in him. Looking at the Night King... I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Theon Greyjoy can single-handedly save the day, but what if Bran takes down the Night King's dragon, and what if Jon Snow takes down the Night King? There's still three episodes left after that, sure, but there's still so much to be done, even without White Walkers. Cersei Lannister remains large and in charge of the Iron Throne, with the Golden Company at the ready, alongside what's left of the Euron Greyjoy fleet. Bronn of the Blackwater still has a crossbow in his hand, and he still has a choice to make if he's going to turn against his old friends Tyrion and Jaime. The Mountain is out there. He's still lurking in the distance. He's still waiting to meet his brother on the battlefield. The fate of Westeros' soul is still an ongoing question, even without the Night King and his minions involved. There's the whole matter of who will sit on the Iron Throne at the end of Game of Thrones, and whether there even will be an Iron Throne at all. Keeping the Night King in the mix for this question definitely amplifies the stakes. But is it essential? Maybe not. The final season may have plenty of other compelling curveballs without the White Walkers in play. Look, there's no way we escape episode 3 without casualties. There are enough characters who feel like they've reached the ends of their arcs that at least some of them are bound to die. And as we've been warned before... If
1: you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention.
0: We're well and thoroughly trained by now to expect the worst from Game of Thrones, after all the beheadings and red weddings and other similar acts of shocking brutality. Sorry, Mom. Anyway, more than being trained to expect the worst, I think it's instructive to pay attention to another Thrones lesson. Expect the unexpected. Characters die with alarming frequency, but sometimes they don't, even when all signs point to it. Season 7's Beyond the Wall, for example. It was infused with certain doom, and only one person died. Thoros of Mir, who froze to death. They say it's one of the better ways to go. The sense of impending dread for the sword-wielding heroes was setting us up to lose an unexpected entity. Viserion, one of the three dragons. A big loss, sure, but definitely not the chalk pick heading into the hour. So with that lesson fresh in mind, what are we expecting heading into the big battle at Winterfell? The answer... Total loss, or close to it, with handfuls of series regulars plucked from the board. It's a likely outcome, sure. But with time still left between now and that eventuality, why not follow Tyrion's lead and have a bit of half-drunk hope? After all, here's what we're not expecting. The White Walkers to be defeated halfway into the final season. Wouldn't that be a twist? I hope we win. I hope so too, Sam. I hope so too. That being said, Grey Worm, Missandei, Jorah, Tila, Gilly, Little Sam, Varys, Dollar's Ed, Podrick Payne, Brienne of Tarth, Beric Dondarian, Theon, Brandon, and Ghost, they're all toast. It is known.
1: It is known. It is known. It is known. It is known.
0: One last thing before we wrap up for the week, and let's throw it back to that scene we keep referencing. It's one of the most emotional moments in an already emotional episode.
1: How about a song? One of you must know one. You'll pray for a quick death. Sir Brienne? High in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts. The ones she had lost and the ones she had found. And the ones who had loved her the most the ones who'd been gone for so very long. She couldn't remember the names. They spun her around on the damp old stones, spun away all her sorrow and pain. And she never wanted to leave. Never wanted to leave Never wanted to leave Never wanted to leave
0: Podrick's Song is called Jenny of Oldstones and it's performed in the closing credits by Florence and the Machine. It hails from George R R Martin's books partly at least. Only the first lyric has appeared in Martin's work. High in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts. The rest of the lyrics come from the Game of Thrones team, including Benioff, Weiss, and series composer Ramin Djawadi. The song is powerful enough as a mood setter, but it may also prove to be a powerful tool in predicting the Game of Thrones endgame. Once you take a closer look at its history, first appearing in Martin's 2000 novel A Storm of Swords, the song originally boasted a simpler name, Jenny's Song. It's sung by Tom of Seven Streams, a singer who travels with the Brotherhood without banners, and it's often performed for a woods witch known as the Ghost of High Heart, who is friends with the subject of the song, Jenny of Oldstones, a commoner who ended up becoming the wife of Duncan Targaryen, one of Jon Snow's ancestors. Duncan's marriage to Jenny was an unlikely one for many reasons, not the least of which was his betrothal to a daughter of House Baratheon. Various forces conspired to split Duncan and Jenny from one another, as he was in line to inherit the Iron Throne, and would not be permitted to rule with a common woman as his spouse. Duncan eventually chose love over the throne, picking Jenny, and spurning his Baratheon fiancé. It was a controversial decision, one that led to a brief war between the Targaryens and the Baratheons. Certainly not for the last time, as Jon's father Rhaegar learned all too well when he died against Robert Baratheon at the Battle of the Trident. Some decades before the start of Thrones Another consequence of Duncan's decision By shirking the Iron Throne In favor of his love for Jenny Duncan surrendered his claim to the crown To his brother, Aerys Targaryen Which is a name perhaps more familiar to you As the Mad King Who just so happens to be Daenerys' father And Jon Snow's grandfather For those keeping score on its own, the mournful quality of Jenny's song and its lyrics are enough to suggest a grim future for the heroes at the heart of Game of Thrones. The music video for the song, it crawls across all the various characters throughout the series. From Arya Stark privately water dancing in season four, to Tyrion Lannister on trial around that same time, and beyond, even to scenes from A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. The song in the music video and the song in the episode both land on the same spot. John revealing his Targaryen secret to Daenerys, with the bones of his mother Lyanna bearing witness. The landing point only strengthens the song's sense of dread, but combined with the song's historical ties to John and Danny, an even greater meaning comes to light. If Jenny of Oldstones tells the tale of a Targaryen who put his claim for the throne aside in the name of love, could we see a similar outcome as it relates to John and Daenerys? The Warden of the North, formerly King of the North, has no true desire to rule the Seven Kingdoms. Why wouldn't he set aside his crown for Daenerys, the love of his life, knowing how much she covets it? An even closer look at the pages of history suggests how Jon might surrender that claim. Through death. Duncan Targaryen was one of many in his family who died under mysterious circumstances in a fire at Summer Hall, the summer home of the Targaryens once upon a time. And yes, once upon a time, people in Westeros took vacations. please. Let that be high on the docket whenever a new Just Ruler sits on the Iron Throne. Anyway, Summerhall is the site of one of Martin's most closely guarded secrets. Among those who died at this fable tragedy are two of the main characters at the heart of Martin's dunk and egg novellas, which, like Ice and Fire, have no immediate end in sight. It's unclear if Jenny of Oldstones died in the tragedy in the books, but the show's creative liberties with the song suggests a woman who has outlived her loved ones, haunted by their memories forevermore. So if we take the song as prophecy, perhaps it's referring to Daenerys's eventual rise to the Iron Throne, but not without some ghosts at her side. Jon Snow, for one, as well as many others she loves and values. We've seen her lose people in her life already. Khal Drogo, for one. Barristan the Bold. Even Viserion the Dragon. Right now, she stands ready to lose plenty of others, depending on how the battle shakes out. With their increased screen presence this week, it's very easy to see the scenarios in which Jorah, Grey Worm, Missandei, all of them lose their lives at the expense of the White Walkers. We may even want to add the Iron Throne itself to the list of beloved casualties, based on a choice lyric from the full version of the song, which went unaired. They danced through the day and into the night, through the snow that swept through the hall remember back to season two in the house of the undying sequence in that sequence daenerys walks through the great hall of the red keep which has a huge hole blown through the roof wide enough to allow snow to fall upon the iron throne was danny hallucinating winter's presence in king's landing or was she seeing her own haunted future daenerys entered the final season as the front runner for the iron throne Though the past two episodes have done her few favors in terms of her reputation with the greater Game of Thrones universe. She's striking out left and right with reasonable people, like Sansa Stark and Samwell Tarly. But perhaps we aren't building up towards some sort of ultimate Mad Queen turn. Maybe all the controversy surrounding Danny isn't meant to set up her eventual loss on the quest for the Iron Throne. Maybe it's just designed to make sense in the context of her winning the thing she covets the most, but without the people she loves the most at her side. Unless we count them as ghosts who continue to sing in her ear, offering wisdom from beyond the grave. Speaking of graves, it's time to tuck this week's podcast away into the crypts, where it's going to be nice and safe. We'll be back next week to survey the damage done in episode three. As always... Thank you for listening to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's deep dive genre TV podcast. Subscribe to the show on your various podcast platforms. Email your questions and suggestions to seriesregular at thr.com or tweet them to me at roundhoward. Head to thr.com slash Game of Thrones for more coverage. And we'll see you again next week for another edition of Series Regular.